to the Global Recon Podcast. Here are your hosts, John from Global Recon and Mike from Fieldcraft LLC, giving you the matter of facts. GlobalRecon.net, FieldcraftSurvival.com. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with Mike Glover of Fieldcraft. Uh, the last couple of episodes, we've given you guys some information regarding a paid survival mindset webinar that we're going to host. And Mike is going to give you guys some instruction on survival and, and, and the right mindset that you need to have. And this kind of falls into other aspects of your life. And Mike is a 17-year veteran of the Army. Uh, the majority of that time was spent in Special Forces with you know deployments to various war zones. So Mike has a lot of experience in that. So the, the, if you want to opt in for this webinar, you can send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net. And on the subject line, just type webinar. The cutoff date for the opt-in is Wednesday, March 30th. The final payday is Friday, April 1st. And the webinar is going to be hosted on April 2nd in the afternoon, uh, Eastern Standard Time. So for anyone who wants to opt in, just send an email again to podcast at globalrecon.net. And from there, we're going to send out an email to everyone who opted in and we'll give you the full details uh, that you're going to need to, to get into the webinar. So for today's episode, we, we've been getting questions about allied special operations units like the the British, the Australians, and people have had questions, you know, can we get a guy on from one of these units on? So today we have the privilege of having on Mitchell McAllister, and Mitchell is a former Australian Special Forces soldier with 10 and a half years in the Australian Army, and the last six of those were spent in Special Forces. Mitchell is also the president of Salient, and the founder of nonprofit organization Australian Veterans Owned Businesses, which highlights uh, veterans from the uh, Australia's Army, uh, the businesses that they have, and, and things like that. So, Mike, I'll hand it over to you. Hey, hey, John, thanks, man. It's uh, Mike from Fieldcraft. Uh, pretty excited today to have Mitch McAllister, a buddy of mine, and, and a guy that has done a lot for his country and is doing a lot for our country as well. Uh, Mitch, served in the second uh, commando regiment uh, special forces unit in in australia uh, that recently started in, in the 2000s and accelerated quickly because of uh, the speed of war in which we were moving and had has has done a lot not only for the australians and protecting their national security but for the joint task force for um defending um you know joint operations across uh, Afghanistan and a little bit in Iraq. So before we get to that, I want to talk to you about, talk to you a little bit about uh, a client I had out recently. Uh, I do, you know, I, I have the survival company in Northern California, but we often do a lot of leadership seminars and team building events for companies and special lot, you know, our specialty is survival preparedness. So mindset, uh, things that go wrong and things that you could do uh, psychologically to ensure that you make the right decisions during a, a, a catastrophe when things go bad. Uh, quite often, more frequently than, than not, we've been getting hit up by companies, uh, larger companies out of San Francisco that have been interested in leadership and doing different team building exercises to basically build team cohesion 
at the uh, you know at the executive level. And we had Kixai out. It's K I X E Y E. Kixai is a video game company ran by a uh, CEO, Will Harbin. Awesome dude. He came out to one of my ops courses. Awesome guy. He's actually a, a real good shooter, and he's a uh, a gun gun guy, kit guy. Um, but he's a, he's he's got some country in him. So he comes out here and he starts training with us, and he's like, "Hey, I see something that could fit into my my company's." Uh, uh, training methodology for building leadership and building a better mindset for his guys. So he came out here for the last two days uh, and we had a blast. Not only did we have a lot of fun, but we had a lot of lessons learned from those courses. Um, special operations leadership and the way we plan and the way we execute missions is, and I make this um, correlation a lot, is similar to how successful businesses run successful business operations. So with that, starting with the task org, leading all the way into, um, you know, the execution and then the post analysis of the product or the operation, they're very similar in how they uh, operate congruently together. Uh, Kickside is a, is a video game company in San Francisco. Um, they specialize in mobile games. Um, specifically, I think now they have one game out called Vega Conflict. It's V-E-G-A Conflict, but they're coming out with a new video game called War Commander Rogue Assault, which I looked at. And, it, and it's pretty cool because it's like got a strategic-based um, operating system where you're not just first-person shooting people in the face. You're actually strategically looking at the battlefield, um, trying to operate and own and dominate space in a in a big world, a virtual world, obviously. But it's really interesting, and it comes out soon. So uh, uh, next episode after uh, this one, we, we intend to have Will Harbin, the CEO of that company, on. Because I want to start getting perspectives of companies and and the reasons they go to got special operations guys and veterans and you know first responders to learn kind of these leadership and uh, these complex for us simple but to, to to them maybe complex planning strategies to enhance their businesses and I think in, in the whole uh, it'd be better for everybody to kind of get that understanding and to build that mindset especially for all those guys out there uh, who are trying to build businesses, uh, whether veterans or first responders or anybody out there who's really listening. So excited about that. And uh, we'll go straight into the uh, interview with Mitch right now. Mitch, what's going on, man? It's Mike. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Hey, thanks for being on today, man. I know it's a different time hack from where we're at. Um, course, My privilege. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Try to coordinate with John all the time on the East Coast and on us on the West Coast. Yeah, but, uh right. Let's talk about first of all, man. Let's go into your your personal kind of experience with joining the Australian Special Forces because a lot of guys and gals who are interested in in you know how how units operate don't really understand the the context and how they develop themselves as special operations units. They don't know a lot about their history. Yep. So let's start with you and 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 being in Australia. Sure. How'd you grow up and what what made you want to be? Uh, a special forces commando when you when you grew up i think for me definitely throughout my teenage years and and late in high school i developed a real kind of interest and passion for uh history uh, a lot of a lot of ancient history and and more so developing into a more modern uh, military uh history it kind of grew on me as as the years went by and then you know when i when i went to university it it kind of you know kept growing and i had a handful of friends that had joined the military when they were quite young. Um, one of them was 
16 and nine months, which at the time I think was the earliest um, you could join. And, you know, the stories that he would kind of, you know, come back with, at, you know, at that time, the deployments were, you know, pretty pretty mundane in, in East Timor and, you know, other places. Afghanistan obviously hadn't really kicked off yet. But, you know, I guess it was just more of a passion that that developed into an interest that then turned into a motivation. So um, when I was when I was 19, I applied and then um, you know, had my had my joining date and joining instructions, and um, and left for basic when I was when I was twenty. So I actually had my twenty first birthday at at basic. Um, you know, and from there it it kind of you know, I'd always had a real interest in in reading about special forces. I mean, I think one of the first uh, accounts that I read was on the Iranian hostage uh, embassy siege back in the eighties in the UK, and you know from I guess from a, an understanding perspective, you know, rationalising the the incident of there being armed terrorists inside of a stronghold, and then you know an assault force going in and basically clearing that entire building and not having one of them killed, but you know, doing the damage and 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 you know basically resolving that situation the way that they did. I always wondered how you know what was the process behind entering a room or working in a team and you know I guess that's how it first started to grow on me and you know over the years in my, my early stages in the military I, I'd already made the decision that that was the path that I wanted to go and pretty much set myself up from day one to you know to make sure that that was where I ended up. So you had an overall instate and that that objective was always special operations from the get-go huh? Yeah, and I think, you know, as the years have gone on and I've kind of started to understand myself and my personality more, um, I know that I'm very, uh, you know, challenge-focused where understanding in myself that I kind of can't sit idle and I, I need to set certain challenges and I need to achieve them and, and keep going. And once I do that, then what's the next one and, and how do I keep moving forward? So, you know, I guess now in hindsight, looking back on, you know, on myself and fully understanding how I how I operate as an individual, that would have definitely been, you know, part of the motivation too. It's like, well, okay, what next? You know, this is where I want to be. What do I need to do to get there? You know, then break down all my training going into it and, and how can I set myself up for, you know, maximum chance of success. So I guess it's more of me breaking it down, you know, logically, but having that kind of motiv- motivation behind me was, um, you know, definitely the reason that I ended up, um, you know, becoming a, a commando in the first place. That's really interesting because a lot of people, when they look at that perspective, um, I mean, the smart, smart guys with the higher aptitudes who could articulate that can can intelligibly communicate that. But, you know, that what you're saying, you know, taking the end state, the end objective and identifying all the things you need mm-hmm. to, you know, basically the specified tasks you need to accomplish that objective are yeah. critical and, yeah. get, and, and meeting the end goal. And when you, when you look at special forces and special operations, when I think about um, special operations in foreign countries, there's only a few nations that um, come to mind as far as being on the same level as the U.S. Uh, special operations, just because you know budget constraints and uh, their civilizations, you know how they began in history, and then the alliances and allies that we were going through different wars. Um, can you tell us? What what is the breakdown of how you guys are organized in the special operations realm? Because I know there's a little bit of confusion between between the commandos and the SAS and everything else. Yeah, uh, there, can can you break that down for us? Well, yeah, sure. That 
initially the SAS, you know, I mean, they've been around, um, you know, for far longer than we have and, you know, definitely have an outstanding reputation domestically and internationally, um, you know, in terms of what they have done and what they continue to do. Um, our unit was uh, first raised in 1997, so relatively young compared to um, other SF units around the world and, and definitely from, um, you know, within our own borders with the SAS. Um, the unit was raised after the government at the time, you know, understood that, I mean, our geographical uh, location and, and the size of Australia didn't really, um, I guess, set ourselves up uh, in the event of something happening, only having one special forces unit uh, on the west coast of the country. You know, that would be, I guess, the equivalent of saying in the US that, okay, we're only going to have, you know, one regiment on or in California and, and that's it. You know, nothing on the East Coast, nothing anywhere else. So, you know, in terms of the size and, and the responsibility to government, it, it didn't really add up. So the decision was made um, and, and we were formed in 97. Basically, there were two units. Um, we were known as the 2-4th um, and they were separated. So the 4th uh, battalion ended up being designated uh, the commandos, which became a special forces unit. And then, you know, as it kind of moved forward, the, I guess the training liability, the unit trying to find its feet uh, and things like that, um, you know, on the fly, really, there wasn't, it was, the decision was made and then everything had to have been done, you know, more or less ad hoc. And then East Timor flared up, which kind of put a bit of a stop on the progression um, at the time out of the four companies. I think when Timor happened, um, there were only two um uh, two companies within four RAR which were actually qualified as special forces, whereas the rest were um, were still conventional military. However, that was a battalion-sized deployment, which meant that, you know, all of four RAR deployed to East Timor. You know, that kind of put things back a little bit, but I guess from the early 2000s was where the unit really gained its, um, you know, gained its, its feet and or found its feet and then started to gain its reputation. So, um, obviously, everything that happened on 9-11... And then, uh, and then Iraq, we had a small kind of role in Iraq. It wasn't anything too great. Most of the roles early on were basically um, a QRF for the SAS. So, you know, once Afghanistan kicked off, for us anyway, you know, probably around 04, 05 was where we really started to make some waves over there and um, were involved in some pretty, um, you know, some, some pretty intense stuff that... I guess from an international perspective kind of put us on the map and then, you know, basically from that early period, 06, 07 was where um, the unit went through a few changes domestically in terms of, um, you know, we had a really forward-thinking CO at the time who uh, was, was an SAS um, lieutenant colonel and he basically, you know, put into play a number of changes within how the unit and how the personnel were trained and what they were meant to be trained on, uh, which then paved the way from 07, which was my first deployment, um, you know, paved the way for us to, to really start doing, um, you know, or getting involved in what how, what our roles have primarily become. So, you know, the, the precision strike and direct action, um, you know, for us, that's where it really kicked off. And then again, over the, the, the seven years following that, I mean, back-to-back -back rotations and, and realistically from a size perspective, our special forces isn't really that big. I mean, you've got SAS on the West Coast and then you've got two commando on the East Coast being the only two full-time SF units. Um, and at any given time, 
you know, our unit had one of four companies, you know, within the regiment deployed to Afghanistan, you know, and that was one gone. Then there was another one that was always on Tag East, which is the domestic counterterrorism front. And then another one, another company, which had just got back from Afghan and uh, another one that was kind of gearing up to go. So, you know, I mean, at that tempo for the duration that we were over there, it, it really kind of, again, you know, the, the, the deployment and the commitment to Afghanistan, you know, put us, 50 years in front of what peacetime conditions would have. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that acceleration of that war machine. Um, and you brought up a good point that I think a lot of listeners probably keened in on is that y- you guys don't have the Posse Comitatus Act that America has, where mm-hmm. whereby military cannot operate within the borders of its own country. E- yeah. Even in, in a counterterrorism situation, it takes special it takes presidential authority for that to happen which would be rare um period but you guys actually do it just like the british you have a mission set working with your national security uh, elements on the ground correct yeah so how it how it works with with it started with um with the sas so the sasr had uh they founded what was known as the tactical assault group west um obviously the west designating the side of the country they're on now that was um that was that has been around for you know decades longer than what two commandos even existed. But and you said SASR, right? The reconnaissance element of SAS. Well, uh, we I mean Australia refers to it as SASR, so it's Special Air Service Regiment, whereas SAS oh, okay. is more generally considered the yeah. um, the British. Um, so so the whole tactical assault group um, uh, concept is essentially a, um, a a commitment to the Australian government that we can provide. Um, you know, services or a resolution force in the event that a uh, hostage um, situation or, or, or similar. Um, there's other there's other triggers that um, you know and, and incidences that we take care of um, that are beyond the scope of the uh, police and other agencies to kind of handle. So, generally, what would happen is as part of um, what we refer to as the defence force aid to civil authorities, that basically affords um, members of Tag East, which is us the right to um, exercise special powers in the event, you know, that one of those terrorist incidences take place. So, again, unlike the US, the incident has to happen. Now, there's a a very strict, um, you know, protocol that needs to be followed in the sense that, you know, if it's a police incident first and then they deem it, um, you know, beyond their capability to to resolve, there's a whole handover process that, you know, is well beyond my pay grade as to, you know, the people making those those decisions. Yeah. Uh, and then essentially once it's made and it's handed over, then we are given those special powers within a, a designated area. So what they can do is they can basically put, you know, a, a ring. If it's a stronghold situation, they'll put it, you know, they'll, they'll generally minimise it as much as they can um, for obvious reasons, you know, military using deadly force in a domestic situation. Um, but just with the nature of the threat today um, with active shooters and all the rest of it, you know, that's had to be rewritten and kind of loosened up a little bit just to be able to cater for that in the event that, you know, it will invariably happen. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a, an interesting space and allows, um, you know, it, it really gives the guys from the unit a, uh, you know, a whole different set of ROEs and environment to basically work in. And, I mean, when we were rotating, you know, in that constant rotation, you know, you would come back from Afghanistan um, and basically have period of time that, you know, you, you would take off and then you would come back and, um, you know, you'd then start to build up to take over tag responsibilities. So, you know, within a period of six months, you've gone from fighting, you know, uh, a war in Afghanistan and, and in the environment that that presents 
to then being back in a domestic setting and now training for, you know, the event of a, of a domestic, you know, hostage situation or active shooter threat, which, you know, I mean, it, it brings with it a litany of other, um, you know, kind of responsibilities and awareness that fighting, you know, in the terrain of Afghanistan doesn't have. So it's definitely a, uh, you know, a, from a professional development point of view, it was definitely, I mean, I finished the last two years of my career with Tag East and it was definitely some of the best and, uh, you know, most interesting training that I'd received um, throughout my entire career. That's awesome, man. That's a, that's a, that's a uh, eye-opening kind of subject that's not really discussed that, you know, it's in we we see here. You know, domestically, you know, if something happened over overseas, special operations elements could obviously activate and react to potential hostage rescue or direct action events that are happening overseas. But mm-hmm. it's rarely leveraged in the United States, yeah. um, given the fact that the capabilities of a lot of departments in the federal government are trying to stand up their capabilities. But politically, it's become an issue because you know, obviously, they don't want the the government to look like they're they're arming themselves in the, at the same yeah. capacity as the military. Yeah. So it's a it's a real fine balancing act. Um, uh, talk about let's talk about your specific special operations experience. How, how was selection for you guys when you went through? Was it was it difficult for you to get through? I mean, it was definitely tough. How how it was? I mean, it's gone through a number of uh, iterations since I went through in 2008. But you know how it how it was when I went. Um, uh, it was September 2008, and you know the first six. I mean, leading up to it, like anything, it's a voluntary application. So you know, I kind of hit the point that I thought I'm I'm as ready as I'll ever be. So you basically apply to the Special Forces Training Center um, and say you want to try out. They get back to you with a date to go and do your physical assessment, and so. You know, you turn up to the date, uh, the time, and the location that, that that's taking place at. Um, generally, there's maybe 40 or 50 guys on, on each of those. So, um, you know, I mean, the the uh, test isn't overly difficult. I mean, it was only from from memory, and I'm not sure. I don't think it's changed um, recently. But uh, 60 push-ups minimum, 100 sit-ups in two minutes. Um, there's a like a, an obstacle course you kind of need to run, which is, I mean, it's it's nothing difficult by any means. Um, then you need to swim 400 meters in um, uniform and shoes in under a certain time, run um, 3.2 kilometers, which I think is maybe two miles, mm-hmm. uh, with with in your uniform, um, you know your your body armor or webbing and a rifle. So the the body armor has to weigh a, a minimum amount, um, and you have to do that in under a certain time. And then you've got to do a 20 kilometer pack march with um, I'm just trying to figure out the conversions. It's like 28 kilograms. So you know, maybe 70 or 80 pounds or something like that. Um, and 20 kilometres, I think, is maybe 12 or 14 miles or something. You know, again, there's nothing overly difficult about it, but what they do is they, you know, I mean, they say 60 push-ups is the minimum. Well, that's fine, but, you know, if you stop at 60, again, it's like the mind games kind of start straight away. You've got guys that are, you know, pushing out 120, 140, you know, like, and it's all cadence push-ups as well. So once you pass that, they basically go back to the board and they lay it all down and they'll choose um, obviously the guys that have performed the best as well as those who they think will have the highest chances of, of passing. From there, each of the candidates will basically get their joining instructions uh, and a similar date, time and location of where to be, what to bring, uh, and then they basically you know, do what they need to in between that point to when they actually start to you know keep themselves fit and healthy and, and all the rest of it. So... 
the initial selection phase when I went through was, um, you know, the first six weeks is purely selection. So, you know, you go into that course expected realistically to perform, you know, basic soldiering skills, but at an advanced level and with, you know, the, the added um, stresses of sleep deprivation and food deprivation and all the rest of it. And, you know, I mean, I know that sounds simple, um, but obviously like any selection, it's the mental and, and the physical um, uh, stresses that really kind of take their toll on people. And, you know, it's amazing after six weeks from, you know, when you begin a course from maybe 110 or so candidates, you know, you, you can be left with, anywhere from 30 to 40. I think we finished with, you know, around 44 or 50. Again, from memory, it, it was less than half. Um, and that selection realistically just, you know, like they will always reiterate, it's it's really nothing other than giving you the the right and the privilege to then go on with the, um, the rest of the commando reinforcement training cycle, which is, you know, probably another 10 or 11 months of, of back-to-back courses, which um, you know, from insertion to CQB and, and all the rest of it in between. It's basically teaching you the bare minimum that you need to know to then, you know, become a part of the unit. So the courses are, you know, I mean, they, they, they go from, I mean, me, I did, we, we did uh, para straight up, which is, um, you know, just a basic parachute static line course and then the water module. And, you know, I mean, the courses kind of mix up uh, and, and where it's at now in terms of the science behind the selection has definitely um, gone to the next level. Uh, but yeah, it, it, again, after the you know the full suite of courses from heavy weapons to urban um, CQB, close quarter fighting, um, and all of those sorts of things, it, it finishes up, and you know that's where you kind of get your beret, and then you post it into a into a commando company. Which, I mean, during the the high tempo, it was usually posted to the company that was looking at deploying next. So you know, again, in terms of the um, consolidation of what guys had learnt. Um, coming out of training or out of the commando reinforcement training cycle to then being posted into a company of guys that, you know, had already deployed once or twice or even more in the later years that, you know, they would then deploy overseas and really consolidate the the skill sets that they kind of learn and put it into practice. So it was definitely a, uh, an awesome time to, to be a part of the unit and, uh, and definitely one of the most, um, you know, gained the most experience from the, you know, that tempo that we were running for so long. Hey, Mitch, so here's a a question I wanted to ask. In the United States, um, when you have a maritime type of operation, anything involving the water, it'll usually go to Navy SEALs or uh, Marine Special Operations element. And and then, you know, each unit kind of has their specialties, even though uh, the Army soft unit, they do have dive capabilities. Uh, what is it, what is it like for the Australian uh, special operations apparatus? Do you guys have like teams that are specific to like water operations, uh, maritime operations, or or how does that work? So we have, um, I mean, from a, a domestic counterterrorism point of view, which I think is is more what you're kind of getting at. That that would fall to you know tag east or tag west. I mean, the we have as part of both tactical assault groups. Um, uh, I mean, I don't think Tag West has it anymore. They they finished that up at, at some point in the last decade from uh, a conversation I'd had recently. But we have, as part of Tag East, we have a whole um, platoon which is Navy clearance divers. So they provide a subsurface capability that we don't in terms of being Army Special Forces. But when it comes to, um, you know, if there was an incident, and again, going back to my point about us, you know, Tag being employed 
without going through a handover procedure. So a trigger that would basically, um, you know, be the go-ahead for TAG and the police wouldn't even get a look in would be some kind of maritime such as, you know, a ship underway recovery or something like that. So, you know, we still maintain that responsibility. And one of the early um, uh, early instances of TAG being used was in, uh, let me just try and bring it up. It was the Pongsu incident and it was in 2003. So, um, basically, there was a North Korean cargo ship in our territorial waters that they thought, um, and rightly so, was involved in smuggling um, a whole bunch of heroin. I think it was, you know, close to five or 400 pounds of heroin. So that was in our territorial waters, and um, that was one of the one of the more um, broadcast, I guess, incidences of where of where ta- that was Tag West. So the SAS were the ones that basically. Um, you know, commandeered that ship. And that's because, you know, again, the police don't have any of that capability. So, you know, in, in the event that something like that happens, that's when we get called in um, straight away. So there's no, you know, again, it doesn't go through that diluted process of police taking it and then, you know, ministers having to sign off on it. That went straight to um, went straight to TAG. Oh, that's awesome to hear. Um, you you guys uh, uh, doing the domestic uh portion of your, of the uh, responsibility i could see like in special operations in america we do red amber green cycles where we're completely task saturated with just war in itself and i can't imagine the work or the operational tempo for you guys going into domestic terrorism and, and then finding the balance between uh work you know and home and then operations abroad is that does that get kind of crazy yeah, I mean, it, it, again, I guess it was something that a lot of people kind of got used to in the sense that, you know, you you at least there was the certainty that, you know, whatever company you were in, you had basically the, the next five years, you know, laid out in front of you in the sense that you knew what the rotation was. So if there was anything that, you know, worked in, in our favour in terms of, you know, managing a personal life, it was it was that in the sense that the tempo was busy, but at least it was templated. So you kind of knew where you were going to be, um, you know, most of the time in, in the next two or three years. So, um, you know, it, it was definitely something that I think a lot of people got used to. And when Afghanistan died down and um, the decision was made to, you know, basically stop the the rotations as they were. You know, there I, I think it was met with a bit of a mixed reaction, really. I mean, guys join the unit and go to the effort that they do um, to become a, a special operations soldier because they want to be a part of it, you know. So um, it was kind of met with a, a bit of a – people were kind of wondering, well, when, when's our next thing coming up or what are we going to – you know, they didn't their, – their biggest fear and a lot of the fears that were kind of – being spoken about was going back to, you know, like a, a training type focused unit. And, um, you know, unlike the US, our government doesn't really have, you know, a huge appetite to, to commit, um, you know, our military around the world. But in saying that, the appetite that it does have generally involves, you know, smaller, lower signature deployments, um, you know, with regards to the, the SF uh, community. So, you know, I mean, there's been uh, a lot of things go on behind the scenes and, you know, small deployments for, you know, platoon sizes um, that, that aren't training, that aren't publicised whatsoever, you know. So, again, I guess it's 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 a double-edged sword, you know. There's definitely the, the commitment to work and the commitment to the regiment, um, you know, and guys loving being overseas. But, you know, again, it's just, you're right, it, it does take a little bit of balancing in terms of keeping, uh, you know, keeping things at a, at a nice level with the personal life as well. 
I remember, uh, and menu got menu have the uh, uh, common um, friend in Tony Rokoff. A lot of people don't know about that, but um, mm-hmm. Tony Rokoff was a com- commando in, in two in, in the two regiment. You call it the second regiment or is it the two regiment two or commando two, com- two? two commando or two second commando. commando regiment? Yeah. Yes, he was. So he was in two commando, and then at the time, I believe he was a military freefall instructor, one of your guys' advanced freefall instructors. And I was going through advanced free fall and the special operations side with him. And we had, I had an awesome experience with him. We were doing, you know, hay hoes or, you know, the high altitude, high openings and pretty, pretty risky training operations that we were doing together. But he used to always make fun of me because uh, he said he would, his always thing was, uh, you're getting small, you know, because uh, <laughs> he's always about hitting the weights and stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm 6'1", 225 pounds, and he's like, you're getting small, mate. And I'm like, how am I getting small? I was like, you're, you're short. You're a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> we, had, we had this uh, thing we, we went back and forth about. But I remember him uh, um, telling me about you guys' his pay as well um, and saying that you guys were, were – he like he asked what our pay was, and we laid it out for him. And he's like, I get paid twice that. And I yeah. know the cost of living, obviously, in Australia is a lot higher, but – uh, when I look at how, how well you guys are paid, is that is that do you think is that rain true? Is that um, yeah, an accurate yeah. statement? It, it, you know, we were we were told. I think uh, I mean it was just before my first deployment in 2007, and that was actually strangely enough brought up by the um, uh, in one of the briefings. You know, that you know before you go overseas, you have all your briefings and and um, you know safeties and all the rest of it that you go over and cultural awareness and all that. All that's you know couple of days of lectures and that was actually brought up back then and they said uh you know that not to get involved in discussions of pay because it may cause um feelings of resentment amongst some of our uh our coalition partners and you know we were told that that us and then the canadians number uh, were, were close behind us in terms of the highest paid in the world um but you're right i think i only had this discussion last week with um with, with somebody else from work where you know we start on a pretty decent salary and, and I mean it's it's all on the website it's it's not anything secret but you know I mean you could be a 24 year old the past the selection and you know your your starting salary is like 106,000 a year um, but oh, in saying yeah. that you know you you it, it, you know it is and it's definitely um, you know at least twice or almost three times the average income back in Australia you know in terms of what 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 the average income is um, but you know, I mean, it, I guess like anything military, it's it's a good starting point, definitely. But as you, even as you progress through the ranks, I mean, the the incremental pay rises that you get per rank, I don't think it really equates to a civilian kind of structure in the sense that you know, if you were in for fifteen years or twenty years and you reach the rank of, you know, and again, our rank structures, uh, it takes a lot. I mean, in special forces, you're probably looking between eight to ten years to reach the rank of sergeant. I mean, our our rank is. Uh, you know, from the NCO point of view, it's private, lance corporal, corporal, sergeant, and then warrant officer class two, and then warrant officer class one. That's it. Like we don't have anything else in between that. So, you know, to get to a sergeant level, um, you know, again, you're probably looking on average between eight to ten years. So, you know, once you reach that, though, the you know the pay increases, they go. Um, you know, they, they, they could be a little bit better, but again, I guess we can't really complain with, with the pay because when we deploy, we also get, we get, as soon as we fly out of country, anywhere that we deploy, um, it's our, our salary automatically becomes tax free. 
And we also get a war service allowance on top of that. So, you know, going back to the previous conversation about tempo, you know, tempo was one thing, but, you know, getting the or earning the amount of money that, you know, you, you kind of became accustomed to because, you know, short deployments would net, you know, pretty significant amounts of money and being overseas other than buying online, you're not really spending anything. So, you know, guys got used to <laughs> rock star wages. And then once things started to die down, they were kind of wondering where they were going to probably buy the next jet ski from. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, man. Hey, so, uh, Tony, we never, and we've never really, offline, I think, but you know, DMs and stuff that we've mentioned to each yeah. other and, and posted each other's stuff. But outside of social media, we haven't really had a real conversation about it. Um, but Tony, Tony Rokov was killed for the guys who don't know. He was a, uh, he was your, our equivalent of a master sergeant or, uh, or not a master sergeant, but a sergeant first class in, uh, in two commandos or mm-hmm. in, in, in the military wing. What, what rank was that? Is that called for you guys? Yeah. So Tony was a, um, he was a sergeant and, uh, you know, we, we don't break the ranks down into, you know, further subcategories, but, you know, he'd been around for a really long time and, Anyone that's been at the unit from from early on or, or mid two thousands would know who Tony is, and uh, you know definitely anyone that had gone through selection and then um, you know the subsequent parachute course uh, would have been taught by Tony. You know he he was one of the most, or if not the most, experienced uh, in regards to the military freefall, and from a civilian application too. He used to do it outside of work. Um, you know he taught me on my basic parachute course as well as the SF water mod that followed on straight after which is where you know him and I first got to know each other I, I knew his um, his niece as well just through a, a separate group of friends that I'd grown up with but you know he um, but the incident you know in which in which he was killed I guess spoke absolute volumes for the guy's personality he was um, he was taking somebody for a, a tandem skydiving jump uh, in the civilian sector and there was a you know from what I'd read a, a freak gust of wind that came in at a you know a really critical height and um, you know basically took all the air out of the chute and uh, or collapsed the chute on them and uh, he, he basically rolled um, you know on on the descent and the the, the kid, I think, was maybe 14 years old, and um, he rolled and, and took the brunt of the, well, he took the entire fall uh, on his back so that the, um, you know, the boy could live, and and that's essentially what happened, and it claimed his life in doing so. Yeah, so when I read about that, uh, a buddy of mine, Jimmy, who worked with him as well, uh, contacted me and said that he had, the accident had just had taken place, Yeah, and um, immediately... Um, you know, knowing knowing how passionate he was about skydiving, but also knowing he how passionate he was about his his family, um, it was obviously devastating news. And anybody yeah. who knew Tony Rokov, I mean, he was just a, a triumphant man. You know, a guy that I think everybody in special operations looked up to. I remember how he made a really definitive in, impact on everybody's um, life when we went to training with him because he was just one of those guys who never complained, always wanted to get in into, into not brawls, but always wanted yeah. to get into the fight. And, yeah. uh, you know, he, he talked a lot of shit, but he was just so loved because of that. Cause his, yeah. his personality was, was so passionate about the job and, yeah, and operating. I, I, yeah. I love that guy. Um, yeah. So, so is there, a, do you guys, have you guys done anything, uh, memorial wise or, uh, heard of anything? Um, what's going on with uh with Tony? 
Uh, there were there were a few things I did see online, and I think that um, you know the Commando Welfare Trust and you know other uh, initiatives back home uh, have definitely been um, you know working overtime to make sure that the families looked after, and obviously his his two little ones. So, so um, you know I know that there was there was a, a real um, push and a number of incentives to get off the ground. Uh, you know pretty much as soon as it happened. Okay, yeah, and me and John will, will uh, look for those, get those from you, and then put notes. So that awesome. way uh, everybody can tune in and learn, learn more about Tony. And then yeah. if uh, you guys haven't seen, I know me and Mitch and John have both posted um, in the past um, little memorial pics and talking about his life. And if you guys um, just stay tuned on, you know, our, on our handles, we'll, we'll continue to do that. Like we'd like to do that every, every so often just to remind people of the guys that we've lost and, um, so, John, you want to close it out with uh, let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about your career and where you're at right now, and then uh, I'll pass it over to John. Sure. Um, so, I moved here uh, to the US in 2014. So I, you know, pretty much wound out my career. I'd already made the decision that I was I was going to head over here. I, you know, I guess it's anyone that knows any Australians here in the US, or you know, uh, particularly in California, will. You know, kind of have a similar story where I feel that you know, as much as I love the country and it's always going to be home, there's certain limitations, um, you know, within certain uh, career paths that you know you can you can. I mean, me personally, I felt that if I really wanted to keep progressing and and get to the level and be doing the jobs that you know I know that I want to do, I, I had to make the move. So, um, you know, I wound out. I understood that um, post military, you know, saying that you were special forces and that you you know you you have this experience and that experience you know I understood a long time ago that that was only going to do so much as you know get your foot in the door and, and make for a cool story um, you know for most jobs definitely in Australia there's there's more scope here in the US for that but you know back home it was kind of uh, there, there was very few paths that one could take uh, or have a choice over you know once they got out so uh, um, I studied and and you know whilst I deployed uh, two trips out of three I was studying. Um, you know, to earn a, a bachelor's and master's degree in security and counterterrorism because, you know, I understood that I needed to not only refine what I'd learned, I, I, I love learning, but, you know, I, I knew that when I made the decision to leave, that was obviously going to hold me, um, you know, in a higher kind of stead than not having them. So, um, you know, I, I slogged away and, and ended up um, finishing up those, uh, uh, finished the master's actually only last year. But, um, yeah, here in the US, I, I've, I've, uh, I linked in with with Salient, who you know most people know Salient for for the guns they make, um, but Salient actually started it as a security company, which a lot of people don't know. Um, in its early form, it actually kicked off in the late 90s, and my business partner, um, you know, had had a lot of high profile clients here in in LA, uh, particularly, and did a lot of work, um, you know, over over a decade. And it was only um, around 08, 09 where he would start modifying his guns to suit his preference, but also, you know, make them a little more aesthetically pleasing, which, you know, I guess was the kind of start of Salient Arms International. Um, you know, once that kicked off, it obviously, you know, went crazy in a very short period of time, which kind of limited the amount of um, focus he could give to the security side and, and all of his um, previous work. So I guess that kind of tapered off um, over a couple of years. And then when I moved here and, and linked in, it all kind of, you know, I guess all the planets aligned. I, I bought um, a gun from Salient first. I was a, I was a customer of theirs first, just because I was following them on social media, you know, back when I was, I was still in in Australia. And when I moved here, it was one of the first things I did. So I ended up buying the gun first, 
and then one thing led to another and you know i ended up being made into a into a partner there and basically run the entire security side which you know not only complements my uh, professional background but you know what i spent uh, almost an equal amount of time at university studying as well so you know i feel that here in in the us there's definitely more of an appetite in this industry for you know people to differentiate between what type of security they want to use um you know and, and they're happy to you know understand that that type of security obviously comes with a certain type of cost i just don't i didn't see that um that real appetite back in australia where you know the the discussion would be more revolved around well why will i why do i want to go with you when you know this other person's only charging me half the amount so you know i get that we're a safe country and and that's you know that's nothing to um you know be upset about but you know from where i want to be and the you know the industry and the environment that i want to be working in and the type of work that i want to be doing i guess it all kind of you know added up for me to make the move over here and it's definitely been you know something that i'll, I'll never regret i mean there's you know i'm a permanent resident here now just you know waiting to have my time to become a citizen i i, I cannot see myself going home um you know other than to visit every now and then see that that's that's funny that you it's funny to me that you like lived the Australian dream, became a commando, and then you come over here, you buy yeah. a salient arms gun, and now you're the president <laughs> of salient. <laughs> and then I have your masters, and now you're just in living in Cali, living the American dream. I think that's a, a pretty epic yeah. story, man. That's pretty awesome. Well, you know, I mean, I, I definitely, I definitely feel since moving here that, you know, and I, I, I'd made this comment within the first few months that uh, I've you know, when they, they say land of the free, it, I definitely feel that there is something here in this country that isn't so much of the nanny state that Australia is that I got so used to. And it was only removing myself from that environment did I realise, you know, I mean, anything that happens progressively you know, over, over many, many years, it's not going to be noticed, right? So, you know, you see, and the point is made quite often with the gun argument and, you know, all the rules and legislation that, that's being brought in, definitely in California, um, you know, with, with limiting uh, access to and types of firearms and all the rest of it now, I mean, that, and, and it's true, right? You know, you bring in small incremental changes and they all add up over a period of time. And Australia is definitely, you know, there in, in a lot of regards. I mean, you know, take driving, for instance. I mean, there, there's entire departments of, of different uh, or every single police um, area command in in from my state of New South Wales, you know, that are dedicated solely to, you know, catching people doing f five miles. Like imagine everyone, imagine people here getting booked going to work for doing five miles over the limit, you know, there'd be an uproar. And, and that's what it's <laughs> in, in Australia, that's what it's got to. And I'm not even joking. Like if you do five, five kilometres, which is, it, it, that's less than five miles, you know, that's like three or four miles over the speed limit, you know, on certain roads, you'll get a ticket in the mail, you know, like it's just insanity. And it got to the point that, you know, you'd be driving to work, you know, slightly anxious every single morning wondering where this, you know, uh, police car or motorbike is hiding, you know, and these cars are decked out with the latest and state-of-the-art equipment, right? So you, a, a car could be driving and it, it can detect every single car around it, you know, look at number plates like the license license plates on every single car run scans on them automatically and if there's anything that comes up if you're if you're half a day late on your registration payment you get pulled over you get your car impounded you you know probably get a 1200 fine in the mail and lose half your license you know like it's just it's crazy it's honestly mad but i just i know that here was 
you know, I, I almost felt like, you know, once I'd moved here and made this decision, I, I felt like it had been something I should have done a while ago. But at the same time, you know, it, it all worked out, um, you know, me hitting, doing just over 10 years when I put in long service leave and, you know, being able to make that transition at the same time was just um, something I, I'll, you know, I'll never, ever regret. Nice. Um, that, that's pretty interesting. And it, it's just interesting to hear the contrast and, you know, Australia being an allied country of the U.S. and we have like a, a deep history that's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Mitch, uh, we're going to close it out, but can you drop your social media handles, uh, any website or point of contact that you would like anyone who has any questions in the audience to uh, find on you? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'm only, I'm pretty much mostly active on um, on Instagram, so it's just Mitchell two underscores McAllister, McAllister with one L. Um, and that's pretty much where I'm most active. So if anyone, you know, has any questions, just DM me. I mean, sometimes I, you know, might take a little bit to get back just based on work, but, you know, I always try and make the effort as long as they're, you know, serious questions to um, to answer people wherever I can. Um, in terms of a website, I mean, realistically, the, you've only got to look at Salient Arms International social media to realise that, you know, we've never had a website. So, it's uh, okay. you know, if there's any questions in regards to the guns, you can just uh, you can email the guys at uh, at sales at salingarmsinternational.com dot com, um, and, and they'll get back to you as soon as they can. In terms of the non profit, if anyone wants to check it out, it's uh, avob.org.au, which is just a uh, it's a non profit that I founded in two thousand and fourteen to basically bring recognition to um, you know Australian veterans that have pretty much left and and started their own business. So you know it's a it's a it's a really good initiative and definitely something that you know gives me great privilege to be a part of every day. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And and I'll say now, if if you want to get any of your your buddies who you served with in Commando Regiment or anything like that on the show or to write articles, you know we we'd be willing uh, to have them. Um, awesome, fantastic. Yeah, I'll let them know. Yeah, sure. So we're going to close out the episode with that. Um, you can find Mike's website at fieldcraftsurvival.com. His Facebook is Fieldcraft LLC. His Instagram is Soft Survivor. That's SOF Survivor. And his Twitter account is IG Soft Survivor. My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook is FB Recon. And my Twitter and Instagram is the same name. It's the same handle. It's IG Recon. So if you have any questions on anything you heard on the show or any other questions about the uh, either company fieldcraft or global recon you can send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net and either myself or mike will respond to you and we respond to every single email or every direct message that we get on any of the social media handles so feel free to reach out to us and we'll see you guys in a couple of days with a, a great episode peace